Today is going to be me talking a little more. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is going to be you guys diving in and doing small group discussions. So I'm going to talk, and then you guys are going to dig into the text of Jonah, and you're going to wrestle with it together. And then we're going to come back into a big group, and we're going to talk and discuss. But so, And then on Friday, I'll kind of talk a little more, teach a little more, and wrap it up. I want this to be interactive. I want us not just talking about this in some theoretical way. I want us actually wrestling with the text of Scripture and actually wrestling with the story of Jonah. Jonah, on the surface, appears to be this simple little easy story. The problem with it is, is I think sometimes we don't fully read it in its entirety. We truncate parts of it. We make it a little easier to understand because we don't know what to do with a prophet who gets a message from God and spends the entire book fighting against God's heart and what God wants to do in his heart. It gets really weird and uncomfortable and kind of wild. And so I want us together to really wrestle with the text. And so today I just want to set the scene for us. We're going to talk about how Jonah really in some ways is a model for us understanding what healthy deconstruction could look like. Deconstruction is all the rage. The whole ex-evangelical people leaving the evangelical church and throwing that all over social media. Stories of people who were leaders and key leaders and great folks, right? And then all of a sudden they are gone. Walking away from the church, walking away from faith. So this is just in the environment that we kind of live in right now. And so I want us to look at Jonah. Jonah in some ways becomes a template as Jonah wrestles with it. And the fun thing about Jonah is behind all of this is God. God is the one that's driving this process with Jonah. God is the one that is seeking Jonah. God's the one that's trying to work in Jonah's heart to produce in Jonah the actual heart of God. And so I just, this is kind of going to be our template for the week. I want to start, though, I want us to talk just a little bit about deconstruction, and we're going to talk a little bit about healthy and unhealthy today. I want to start in Mark. Seems a little weird. But if you would, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you just look at this segment in Mark, um, this segment, this little mini segment in Mark, starts with a story that I didn't understand what to do with for a long time. This is the story where Jesus has to pray twice to heal the blind man. Right? Jesus, blind man is there asking for Jesus' healing. Jesus prays, says, what do you see? The guy says, I see people, but they're like trees. And so Jesus then prays a second time. It took me quite a while of wrestling with this and reading and listening to really begin to, I think, understand what's going on here. This kicks off an entire segment in Mark, actually from this, from 8.22, all the way to the end of chapter 10. And as you read the Gospel of Mark, those sections are bookended by Jesus healing blind people. And in this time, what you have, immediately following the story where Jesus heals the man twice, is Jesus taking his disciples and saying, who do you think that I am? And so they say, oh, the people say, who, who do they say that I am? And they say, oh, they say that you are a prophet. You are Elijah. Come again. You are John the Baptist. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And we have Peter's confession. You are the Christ. 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus there says, hey, Peter, you didn't come across this by yourself. It is the very Spirit of God that's revealed that to you. And then Jesus begins to do something that's wild. Jesus begins to redefine and reinterpret for them what Messiah meant. He says, you're right, I'm the Messiah. And I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And I'm going to be spat upon, mocked and flogged. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again on the third day. You see, the culture that they lived in had an idea of what Messiah was going to be. Political ruler, overthrow the Romans, bring justice. And Jesus has to, for his disciples, he has to redefine what that is. He has to deconstruct their understanding and their worldview for what it meant for him to be Messiah. And then he has to help them reconstruct what it actually is that's in line with who he is. He has to tear some things down in their hearts so that he can then rebuild it back up. And when Peter hears Jesus say, hey, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise on the third day, Peter's response was what? Absolutely not, right? You will not do this. This absolutely is not possible. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, you don't have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of men. Right? Peter, you're thinking about this in your way and the way that's been taught to you all your life. And I'm telling you, that's not who God is and that's not the way I am. That's not the Messiah I am. And then you have this wild story of the transfiguration. Where at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, they go up on the mountain. And with the cloud and with the imagery there, you're supposed to be taken back to Sinai. Right? Cloud on the mountain, thundering, right? The very presence of God speaking there. And again, the disciples don't know what to do with it. And the way Mark ends it is it's the voice of the Father that says, This is my Son. Listen to him. And then as soon as that is said, the clouds go away, and Mark says, all they saw was Jesus. So Peter had fought against Jesus. No, this will not be the way it is. But it's the very voice of God that says what? No, no, no. He's right. And you need to listen to him. It's an experience that they didn't didn't know what to do with, right? Part of what God is doing in this is he's trying his best to help them understand, to help them deconstruct the way they approached this, the way they approached him being Savior, the way they approached him being Messiah, so that he can pour into them and reconstruct a way that they can really follow him. And so when you go back then, why does Jesus heal, touch the blind man twice? I think it's a prophetic act. All throughout scripture, right? The prophets do some stuff. They do things to try to make a point. 
God says, hey, Jeremiah, I want you to grab a loincloth. I want you to wear it for a while. Then I want you to go over and I want you to bury it in this river in the banks. And then I want you to wait a certain number of days. And then I want you to go pull it out. And I want you to use this as an object lesson to teach my people. Right? The famous one of Jeremiah, go to the potters. And watch the potter working with the clay. Ezekiel is full of this stuff. Ezekiel, I want you to lay on your side X number of days. And then I want you to turn on the other side and lay on that side. It's these prophetic acts. Jesus, he curses a fig tree, right? And the fig tree in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, was a representation of Israel. Yes. And so it's these prophetic acts, and that's what he's doing. I think it's Mark's way of saying the disciples see him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they don't yet see him. And it's going to take a second touch. It's going to take Jesus continuing to work with them for that to be possible. I think as we look through the scriptures, we find that this is part and parcel of what it means to faithfully walk with God. And so this is kind of what we want to be able to walk through. The reality of it is, is there are healthy Ways that God will work in our lives to deconstruct some things so that he can reconstruct some things. And then there are unhealthy ways that we will deconstruct. So let's talk for just a little bit. You've got notes in front of you, the unhealthy versus healthy deconstruct. Okay? So if we want to talk unhealthy deconstruction, unhealthy is just where we tear everything down. Right? Sometimes right now in our culture, the push is we just tear things down for the sake of tearing them down. Unhealthy deconstruction is just jettisoning things and tearing down without trying to reconstruct something that will be healthier on the other side. I mean, sometimes as you listen to people... Why do they deconstruct? Sometimes it's because they've been hurt by the church. They legitimately have been hurt by the church. Their power has been used abusively. And people look and go, well, if that's the way the people of God are, then I don't want anything to do with them. And so sometimes it is pain in that way that causes people to respond and to begin just to tear everything down. Sometimes... You know, the reality is, is that we tear stuff down or people tear stuff down because they just want freedom to do what they want to do. Right? They just want to be able to kind of just do whatever they want to do and not have any kind of structures to get in the way. Um, I remember uh, hanging out. I, we were, went to this conference in Peru, and uh, I was there, and this uh, young guy, you know, 18, 19, came up to me. I was 23, 24 at the time. And he starts asking me this deep theological question. He starts asking me this kind of deep theological question, right? And I gave him the answer, and I thought I gave him a good answer. And when I turned away, my Peruvian mentor and pastor, he just laughed. He's like, you missed it, man. What do you mean I missed it? He's like, you'll understand later. You just need a little more time. He's like, that kid came to you with that question because all he really wants to do is sleep with his girlfriend. He's looking for some way to make that possible. Mm-hmm. He wants some excuse, some loophole, some theological something that will just let him do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, as humans, we do that. 
we'll deconstruct and tear things down for that reason. We just want freedom. And then the other thing that happens is sometimes we tear things down because we're part of a community of people that just tear things down. People around us are kind of deconstructing and we get swept up into the mix of it. We just get swept up into the mix of it. And I think sometimes um, that's kind of what happens on social media is people get into a community and they begin to fall down rabbit holes and it begins to, people are asking questions and posing questions and doing these things, right? And the truth is, these aren't new questions. The church has been wrestling with these for thousands of years. And there are answers. There really are. But sometimes in the hype and with everybody, it feels cool and it feels empowering and everybody around us is doing it. And so we get swept up into that. Um, You've got a quote here um, by Simone Wheel. And I really like this quote. People who are uprooted hurl themselves in some form of activity necessarily designed to uproot, often by the most violent methods. Those who are not yet uprooted are only partly so. Whoever is uprooted himself uproots others. Whoever is rooted himself doesn't uproot others. Sometimes the reality is when we feel uprooted, we want to turn and begin to uproot people around us so that they feel the same sense of uprootedness that we do. And so that's really unhealthy deconstruction. The, the reality of this healthy deconstruction is this. It actually is a real part of discipleship. It's, it's coming up against those things, right? The things that we've been carrying, the things that we have, the things that aren't serving us well anymore, and it's actually the grace of God that begins to help us tear those things down and rebuild that and rebuild something healthier in its stead. And that's really what he's about. I mean, the reality is when we begin to follow Jesus, we're not computers. All of the back, all of the ways that we've dealt with life and relationships, all the ways that we have made, created an image for ourselves, those don't just get wiped away in a moment. They're still with us. And part of coming into God's family and then walking with Jesus is learning how to have healthy relationships. It's allowing Jesus to begin to pull down some things in our lives, to uproot some things, so that then we are able to put in its place something healthy. I mean, think about with this, I, I wonder sometimes, though, if maybe a better way to talk about it, because deconstruction is all the rage, and it can be misunderstood, could just be talking about disorientation and reorientation. We're going to go through things in life that are going to disorient us. We're going to lose people. We're going to face pain. We're going to get hurt. And it's going to create moments where these windows of time where Jesus and his mercy begins to come in and begins to root around and begins to to make changes for us. And we feel disoriented. Dude. And what he's wanting to do by his grace is reorient us around him, around his word, around his life for us. So. Um, this is why 
Paul in Ephesians. Talks about putting off the old ways, putting off the old man, putting on the new man that's been created in the image of God in Christ. So, questions at this point? Comments? Thoughts? Okay, talk with me. I don't I just don't understand. Maybe it's because of English is not my first language. Right. But I don't understand the construction of, of what? Of what? Right. So usually when it's talked about is deconstruction of a faith, of your faith, of a trust in Jesus, of a um It's a, something happens, somebody raises a question, and people begin to say, well, if that's not true, let me give you an example. Um, There's a really famous New Testament scholar who's actually agnostic. He's an agnostic New Testament scholar. And his journey, I know it seems weird, right? But he is. His journey was this. He grew up in a conservative Christian circles, went to, like, Wheaton, I think it was, got a master's degree, started doing his Ph.D. um, at Yale, working underneath in uh, comparing Greek manuscripts of the Bible, right? And one day he's working through something, and uh, there's a spot in Mark where Mark says, oh, and this happens when so-and-so was high priest in Israel. Actually, though, when you read it, that person wasn't actually high priest. It was the he, the person mentioned in Mark was the grandfather of the person who was actually high priest at the time. And so that one little question was like pulling a thread in this man's soul. And he's like, well, if that's not true, is any of it true? Can we trust any of scripture? Do we know anything, right? And he began to just completely disassemble his trust in Jesus, right? And he deconstructed it. He pulled it back. Deconstruction is a philosophical term that's being thrown around a lot right now. And it just means to take whatever's handed to you, traditions, church traditions, mm-hmm. faith, and just tear it down. For the purpose of confusing you, basically? Right, or, right, right. I mean, again, it's one of those things to where not necessarily the purpose of confusing, I think the outcome of it is confusion. Okay. Right? The outcome of it is confusion. The outcome of it is I don't know what's true anymore. And so maybe nothing is true. Right? So, great question. Yeah. I was just going to say something about that. It seems like some of these scholars sometimes, they study so much and they study the Bible and they study this and they study verses in the Bible that they're just doing the study instead of praying for understanding. Mm-hmm. A revelation, praying for it first, and then going to study it. I don't know if that's what's happened to this guy, but it just seemed that way listening to your story. I'm like, oh, did he pray first for understanding right. before he went to study right. these scriptures? Well, again, yeah, okay. Well, I'm wondering another example besides a scholar. Right. I've had friends who deconstruct the Bible because they've grown up in very legalistic Christian right. homes. And so they've been trying for their whole lives to follow the rules, and then they just can't anymore. 
And so deconstruction for my friend was trying to find truth, like our fault is following the rules truth, or what really is true. Or I've known people who deconstructed because they've had a grief, they've lost a loved one, and they're trying to figure out what's true anymore. So I don't know if really they're looking for confusion, they're actually looking for answers. And as a church, if we can come alongside them and help them find truth, instead of letting them be on these journeys by themselves Mm -hmm. and help them find truth when they're seeking it because they're grieving or because they're confused or because they haven't been able to figure it out by themselves. Another term maybe, or the way I'm thinking of it, is we've heard a lot of famous writers and stuff use the term like dark night of the soul. Right. Mm -hmm. Going through the darkness and then come out in the light is the reading. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, and I think part of what I want us to be able to do is have a conversation about there's a healthy version of this and there's an unhealthy version of this. The unhealthy version of this is what's in our culture often, okay? The healthy version of this is we are all going to face these times where we get blindsided, okay? For me, it was my mom's death. It really was. And so what happened with me, I was 19, and as much as I love, I love the church that I grew up in. Phenomenal people who love Jesus, absolutely love Jesus. But one of the things that we didn't talk about as a church community at all was grief. Right? Grief wasn't part of the conversation. Oftentimes, people being very well-meaning would say things like, you know, just be happy your mom's, my mom's struggling with cancer. Right? Just be happy she's healed and holding heaven. You know? You don't need to like just just be, you know, understand. Like don't and so there's nothing necessary like that's true, but the pain, the hurt, right? The grief. I got blindsided by it. And I wondered why God wasn't taking it away. I wondered why God wasn't showing up the way that I wanted him to. And so for about a year and a half, I was in a season of disorientation. I was walking through a fog, and I wanted to follow Jesus, but I wasn't sure. And so questions are there. and Everything is boiling and rolling. And what wasn't helpful in that season was when people be like, just pray and trust Jesus. You know, what I needed was a conversation partner, somebody who would walk with me and Part of what Jesus was doing in my soul in that time was expanding. My understanding of who God was, was not sufficient. It was an immature understanding of the character of God. And so what Jesus was doing there was expanding that and allowing me to see. But it was painful. And it meant I had to relearn. I had to pull some things down. I had to step away from some of the ways that I had thought who God was, the way that I thought that he thought about me, right? I mean, again, sometimes in a Wesleyan holiness tradition, we can go as long as we do all the right things, then we have the favor of God on our lives. Then we're loved. But what happens when there's a season when we're disoriented? And it's in those moments that actually what Jesus wants to do is help us to see him more. The thing is, though, is sometimes what that causes in people 
is questions, doubts, frustrations. And right now, the way it's kind of being handled is often what we do is either we kind of tell people they shouldn't feel that way, or we want to give them all of the answers. Right? We want to give them all of the, the proofs of why what they're feeling or what they're, the question they're answering is wrong. Right? And I think part of what we see in Jonah is a model for us of God walks with Jonah in the messiness. And he's just there. And I think sometimes if we can reorient ourselves for people who are struggling and doubting, right? If church has to be a place where you can't bring your struggles and you can't bring your doubts, what do you do? Right? And if you're doubting if the place that you're going to get your information is the internet, you will fall down these rabbit holes. And you will become convinced that there are no answers to the questions that you're facing. But they're all Yeah. Um, I just have been going through yeah. not grief, like yeah. actually losing someone to death, yeah. but like losing yeah. someone very close to me. Right. Um, and that, <clears throat> what you're talking about is like that acceptance and support from mm-hmm. people not to know what pray about it or, I mean, right. of course you can right. pray. <laughs> right, absolutely. You're going to, right? Just yes. accepting me and what I was feeling and the process that I've was going through and be saying it's okay to feel this way. Right. There's not the problem feeling guilty or right. sad or whatever you're feeling, which I was feeling all of the things. But right. <laughs> so that just is I can testify I mean I'm sure a lot of people can testify to that form of support, but it's really benefited me. Right. So. Right. And we'll we'll talk about this, but I think one of the things for us as people who are walking with Jesus is this is for us to learn how to monitor our own anxiety, our own stirred upness. I can do that. When somebody comes, when somebody comes to you and says, I've got this doubt, yeah. right? And they, they're honest. If we're not careful, what happens is it's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. They're going to lose their faith. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, right? We get all kind of stirred up inside and we want to fix it. We want to give them the answer. We want to be able to have the thing, right? We're gonna, we want to be able to pray for them and have the Holy Spirit kind of zap them and fix it, right? But often what Jesus is calling us to do is to walk with the person. And the answers, they'll ask the questions and you'll be able to give the answers and you'll be able to walk with them to find them because they're there, right? But I think sometimes the initial reaction on our part can be we get so worked up in the moment that we just want to give it and fix it, right? And have, but it's a process that people actually have to walk through. And it's, yeah. I was just thinking as you're talking about all this and that, you know, it's good to keep in mind through these situations where the truth of the matter is God's ways are higher than our, than our ways. Right. And it's a matter of bridging that time between we don't understand where we're at and where God's plan is and all of this. Right. But we know down the road mm-hmm. we're going to get the answers we seek. It's about trusting God to reveal those to us. Yeah. And not losing our faith in the midst of it. And I think sometimes the reality is, is we need to do that in community. 
Yeah. We do that in a healthy community. Yeah. Because sometimes it's really hard to say, oh, you know, God's, again, you can say it with a, with, from a good place, right? But from somebody who's struggling, hey, you know, God's ways are higher. But if you're walking with the person and you're there, right? right? And you're with them and you're investing in them and you're listening and you're moving through. Example. Correct. Correct. Kind of that, Correct. As well as you Correct. let down your walls a little bit. Right. And, and we get to be able to be an embodiment of God mm-hmm. and the radical love of God. That God loves not just the healthy, light parts of us. He loves the parts that we're still struggling with, the dark that's still in us, that he is working to purge out of us. Mm-hmm. Right? My home church gave me a great understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit to heal. What, what wasn't talked about as much was process. That God often uses a process. Right? Sometimes it's instantaneous, and it is. And sometimes it's a process that he walks through with us so that we have that. But the reality, like, for example, one of the voices that's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with John Piper. His son now, one of his boys is actually one of the big TikTok, used to be an evangelical, I've deconstructed the faith kind of voices. Right? And so, you know, so he'll be like, saying things, you know, how can we talk about God being love when he's going to be sending everybody to hell? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so there are, again, there are answers to that. Mm-hmm. There are ways that we can wrestle through that as we walk with people. Um, and so, but it's, it's being open with them and it's beginning to journey with them and hold that, not just try to fix it in a second. Yeah, yeah, um, and I I picked up with some friends that have gone down that, and what I've noticed is that because there wasn't that community, right, and they've gotten when I stepped into the situation, they had gotten so hardened and so um, determined that this deconstruction and this mess was the way that they needed to be that there was no intervening at that point and that was it's been a really hard and sad thing to to realize that if you know a couple years earlier some loving caring people would have surrounded them I don't think they would be in that same place right now right Right. and so again the thing about it is is that God has the God is infinitely loving and infinitely redemptive. He just is. I mean, that's what the book of Jonah shows us. As we dive in the book of Jonah, we will see the very heart of God on display. Not just for the nations of the world, but for the prophet. Jonah's a book that's unlike any other, right? Especially in the minor prophets. The rest of the minor prophets are all, this is what prophet so-and-so says, right? It's their, it's their oracles. It's their sayings. It's what they were proclaiming. It's the message that God was proclaiming to the people through them. Jonah is all narrative, basically, except for chapter 2, which is poetry, right? Jonah's about Jonah. It's the story of the prophet. And so it's wild as we begin to lean into this to see the heart of God on display, God is infinitely redemptive. He is. And he's infinitely more able 
to redeem power than we can even imagine. And so part of what we want to talk about as we move through Jonah is ways for us not to be afraid, not to respond in fear, but to be able to love people well, to listen to what's happening, and to be able to walk with them, and then be able to hopefully give some resources to to walk alongside them. I want to introduce um, just a little bit of a concept for you guys. Um, center bounded fuzzy sets. This is a this is something that comes out of missiology of missions. As we're going into different countries and cultures, and we're going into places where they are predominantly Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist, and we're beginning to talk to people about what it means to follow Jesus. How do we how do we understand that process? And so the sets are really ways that we talk about this to understand in some ways who's in and who's out. And what does it mean when somebody's following Jesus? Okay? So, bounded set. Think about it like sports teams. Okay, you're playing a football game. You've got, you've got people with jerseys. And the people with jerseys on the field, they are the team. Right? It's a very clear, we know who's in and who's out. The, the, the teams have opposite color jerseys, right? We know who belongs with which team where, and it's really, really clear what that is, right? If you're in the, if you have a jersey, but you're in the stands, you're a fan, not a player, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a jersey and you're on the field and it's red, you belong with a red team, and if it's blue, you belong with a blue team, okay? And so sometimes... What we do or what we can do is begin to create some artificial distinctions. How do we know if somebody's really a follower of Jesus? Well, they don't drink and they don't smoke and they don't dance and they don't do this and they don't do that, right? And we look, and if you do one of those things, you are out. And if you don't do them, you are in. Our world right now this is, we define our tribe by a bounded set, right? Our politics is like this. You hold a position about one thing, well, you're in my tribe or you're out of my tribe, right? There's a very clear litmus test. Boom, you're in or you're out. You're in or you're out. And so oftentimes what's happened in the church is we have done this. Sometimes with bounded sets, it's actually easier because following Jesus is messy. Okay, when we when we worked with Asian students, you know, they would be studying scripture with us and hanging out with us and asking these really profound questions while can you know just they're just on a journey. So growing up, the way it was talked about people coming to follow Jesus is you did evangelism and then somebody made a decision. And then you did discipleship. And there was a very clear point that everybody knew when they actually made this decision. When we were working with Asians, we were doing discipleship before, as part of the evangelism. And they would look back and be like, oh yeah, I made this decision to follow Jesus two months ago. 
right? It's it's messier, right? It's it's different. It's it's just it. And so what happens sometimes is traditionally within Christianity, we have thought of it as a bounded set. We have a list of things or some things that you need to believe, some things that you need to do, some things that are there. And you're either in or out based on that. Okay? Part of what's happening with deconstruction in our, in our country right now is people are looking at these boundaries and they're questioning Because we get handed things by the church community that we grow up in. We do. And that's good, right? We come to faith. We're in a church community. We're just taught. And we don't, we're rooted in a one place. We don't know much about what's going on in other churches. We don't know much about what's going on globally. We get a series of things, and it's good, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but it's incomplete. And so what's happening is is people are looking at these boundaries and going, oh, is that really the gospel? Is that really true? But if this is all we know, right, what happens is, is you then create this, a fuzzy set. Okay, fuzzy set is we don't really have any boundaries, Think about the uh, the football analogy, right? Of jerseys and teams, right? We're not gonna, like, you can just wear whatever jersey you wanna wear. Well, how do you know who's on your team, right? You ever try to play basketball, right, on a team and, you know, your, your, your teammate is wearing the colors of the other team and you're trying to figure this out in an effort not to be founded and not to define things so like black, white, or allow for some messiness, what happens is, is then you end up taking out all the same things. All right. And the third way then is actually centered. Where your focus isn't on the boundaries. How do I define them? What does it look like? Who's in, who's out? The focus is on the center. And who's in and who's out is actually, are they walking towards or are they walking away? Are they turned towards Jesus or are they walking away from him? And so sometimes as people are wrestling with doubt and you're going, wait, it sounds to me like you might be outside now. Actually, they still may be walking towards Jesus. It just doesn't kind of fit the boundedness of it. And so it's, it's how do we focus on Jesus the center? How do we point people to him? How do we help them know him? How do we make it about him? How do we help people orient their lives around him? And so as we kind of walk through this, Right? If we think about Old Testament, this was the reality for the people of God. You had Jew and you had Gentile. One was in, one was out. And it was very clear. Right? But what do you do with the Jonah who's in, but who's running away? 
What does that look like? How do we understand it? What do we do with that? Right? And so what happens in, in the New Testament, as you're reading and they're wrestling through and they're talking about things like circumcision and food laws and all of these things, and you have <coughs> debate and discussion with what does this look like? How do we know? Because if you ate pork, you were out. If you didn't, you were in. Right? If you kept, if you circumcised, you were in. If you didn't, you were out. There were some very clear kind of boundary markers. But what happens then when Jesus comes and the gospel goes global is the boundary markers get shifted. Like, how do we know? What does this look like? And so you find in the New Testament, this is what they argue for. is a focus on what God has done in Jesus. And the reality, right, in Acts, if the Spirit has come on them the same way he came on us, who are we to say that they are not God's children, just as we are? So, all right. Any questions about that? What's the scripture reference? Hmm? Uh, I know the scripture, but what's the reference? What's the reference for uh, which one? Uh, if uh, the spirit is, if they have the spirit yeah. as we have. So it'd be like, it'd be Acts 12, where Peter is going back and reporting what happened, or Acts 11, where Peter's going back and reporting what happened with Cornelius. And then you find the same, something similar, I think, in Acts 15. Um, and that's in some ways also Paul's one of Paul's key arguments in Galatians, mm-hmm. right? That you have the Spirit and the Spirit is crying out within you, Abba Father. Mm-hmm. And those who have the Spirit of God are the children of God. But the Spirit becomes the main marker down the line, the center for that. And it becomes a center rather than just what we do or don't do. And the thing is, sometimes it's easier. Like we as humans like. If I do this, I'm in, and if I don't do this, I'm out, right? It makes it easier for us, but it's just not accurate often. Yes, please. It's just rolling around the plane that the Yep. We don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. If we allow ourselves to be broken, God to redeem what's broken. Mm-hmm. And if we're broken, we realize who we really are. Mm-hmm. And we're not real like that because mm-hmm. we're the heart of man is deceitful above all things. That's you know we get a perspective of who we really are. Yeah. And then we can come to the, the cross. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. Right. I mean, we heard it last night, didn't we? In the service. What are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes are the values of the kingdom that we reorient ourselves around. Our culture says blessed, happy, the rich, right? Have the favor of God. And that, I mean, think about it. I mean, that really would have also been people who are wealthy would have been seeing those who have the blessing of God on their lives. And Jesus says, actually, it's the poor spirit. Every one of those subverts, flips upside down, 
right? What we as humans naturally want to gravitate to. Jesus is reorienting us around himself, around his heart, around his values. I mean, this is what the kingdom is. Jesus is going through the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say. It's a reorientation. But it's painful. Yeah. One thing that, you know, in our culture, the, you know, Brian mentioned in the last hour, the atheistic perspective mm-hmm. is pretty predominant in the world right now. In, in our country, founded on God's principles. And, uh, I, I like what I'm hearing because uh, life is not a Hallmark movie. Right. Where everything works out with money and compassion. And you leave God out of it, you can solve all your problems. Mm-hmm. But reality is everybody mm-hmm. is going to hit a wall. Right. No matter your social status, your educational status, your ethnicity, everybody's going to hit the wall. Right. And it's the body of Christ. When people hit the wall, they just don't throw answers at them. They have to be Christ to those people. Right. It's the living epistle in us that's going to cause people to come to faith. And, uh, you know, so many of our generation, maybe some of our children, has grown up with that boundary. And if you can't be a believer, if you test those boundaries or, you know, separation, I love the example of the Jews and the Gentiles. Right. But like Skip said, you know, we're broken. And when we understand that brokenness, we help each other through those periods. The body of Christ's brokenness and those outside the body of Christ, we're all still created in God's image. But oh my goodness, the group mentality, the viciousness, right. the evil that's attacking the body of Christ today, to stand in the forefront of that and just to say, you know, one day you'll understand that God loves you. He loves you no matter what. And when they become broken and they remember those words of truth spoken in love or the actions of love, but uh, it's just a beautiful picture. And sometimes we get a little, I think we think, okay, why is this happening to us? Why? But you know, it's happened over and over and over and over historically where people become wealthy and they feel they don't need God. They can answer all their own questions and then they fall away. Well, I think, you know, again, Jonah asks us to wrestle with some stuff. Yeah. What do you do when the people who are, quote unquote, the pagans actually respond to God more quickly than the prophet does? What do you do when it's the prophet that's the problem, not the people that are lost? 
like, how do we wrestle through that? Like, how do we, I mean, Jonah asks us, like, in some ways, it's going to hold a mirror up for us and ask us to really deeply wrestle, right, with, with just reality. And sitting behind that is the heart of God, the heart of God who wants Jonah's wholeness, who wants Jonah to know him and to embody his heart. And it's also the heart of God who wants the nations to know. And so the, the reality of it is, it's really fun, is Jonah is going to play with our minds, and it'll play with our conceptions, and it'll cause us to kind of have to question some things in good ways. Yeah. In your uh, sketch that's up yeah. now, the... The, the one that isn't represented is the one who's standing still and not going anywhere. anywhere. Right. right. And I, I don't know what position we as believers are supposed to take as to whether we're supposed to define whether they're marching toward, standing still, or going away. <coughs> Do we... I recently had a discussion with someone that said we have no right to have an opinion. You can't judge. So, what would be what would be your response? You're gonna give me the easy question, right? <laughs> Real quick. So, I, I, I guess what I would say is we all are prone to snap judgments, and they're judgments. And we all are prone to a judgment that makes us in the right and the other people in the wrong. That we understand it and we see it and they don't. And I think Jesus is going to challenge us, right? He's like, hey, why are you going after the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log coming out of yours? And I think the reality of it is, is we, when it comes to judgment, we just need to be careful because we don't know people's motives and we're not the judge. I mean, James is harsh on that with us. You know, that James actually actually says when you start to judge, you kick God out of his throne and you sit there and then you just say that you're the one who can decide the motives and the hearts and the intents of everybody else. Okay? But what Jesus calls us to is discernment. He's really clear there there are wolves among the sheep. That you're gonna know the fruit. Like a good tree will produce good fruit. A good, a bad tree will produce bad fruit. I think we can evaluate yes. that we can be wise yes. without judging. Yes. That we can be able to say, hey, look, you know, have, and we listen. I, I think sometimes it's in the listening that we are able to evaluate, and it's in the listening that we're able then to begin to discern how to respond and when to respond. I think sometimes my heart that I'm trying to learn is, I can be quick to want to fix things for people and want to give them answers, right? I mean, somebody said this, and I hadn't noticed it. It was mind-bending to me, right? So you have this scene where Jesus shows up and shows the disciples that he's risen, and Thomas isn't there. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see. And Jesus waits a week. He shows up to Thomas. But it's a week later. I mean, sometimes the reality of it is, is there's, there's, I'm just learning how to be patient with people and how to walk with them and how to journey with them and how to pray with them. I mean, again, 
growing up, I love my home church. They still deeply support our ministry. Like, they just, they're just people that love Jesus. But we didn't have, we really didn't understand as a congregation growing up, I didn't understand the lament songs. I didn't understand these songs that it's okay to wrestle with, question, cry out, God. Hey, you did this in the past, but where are you now? What's happening? That ability to hold grief and pain in the presence of God and turn it to Him is huge. It's just huge. Because life is hard and we get smacked. We do. Um, Let me read this quote. I think one of the realities as we kind of work through this, and this is what Jonah's going to get us at, that we tend to exchange God's story for a lesser story. We exchange the story that God calls us into for something lesser. And our, our call, I think, is to be enamored again with the true story of God, enamored with redemption, enamored with what he has done. And then to begin to live out of that. You guys have a long quote in here. I want to read this at the end of it. It says that they might find themselves in the story God has to tell them about, has to tell them as his children, his friends, his beloved, as those for whom he is willing to lay down his life. In the confessions, this is Augustine's confession. In the confessions, but also in the preaching that would occupy the rest of his life, Augustine continually invites fellow sojourners, sisters and brothers in the human condition, (coughs) to try on a story that they might not have considered. The story that they are made for more than the mundane. That they have hungers that no thing can satisfy. That they are loved by the one who made them. That there is a home that's already been made for them. That the God of the universe knows everything about them and still loves them and is waiting to welcome them home with scars on his outstretched hands. That can't be me. We might at first protest. It's too fantastical, too unbelievable. It might even offend our need to earn God's love or prove ourselves. I know what you mean. We can almost hear Augustine say, I've been there. What if I told you that you can bring me release even from that? Would that be the secret you've been hoping is true? Welcome to a story you've imagined. I'm here to tell you that it's true. The invitation, I think, from the book of Jonah is to be remembered, to be reminded of the true story. What is God's heart? Who is God? What is he inviting us into? So here's what we're going to do. Okay? You guys have a book of Jonah. Right? It is two pages front and back. I want to ask you to read the whole book of Jonah at least once before we come back tomorrow. Okay? Sit and read it as a story. Okay? Just read it in one sitting. 
it's like a short story, right? It's not super long. It'll take you about 15 minutes. Read it from, just read it. It'd be really great if you could read it a couple of times before we come. Tomorrow, we're going to dive into chapter one, and we're going to just jump right in. And so what we'll do is this. The way the rest of the time will work is I'm not going to be talking like this. We're going to put you, you guys will just huddle up in small groups, and you're going to read the text of Jonah, and you're going to wrestle with the text of Jonah, and then we'll talk about it. And I'll have a few things, little some insights that I'll give you. But I really wanting us, I, I, I want us to wrestle with the text of Scripture. I want you asking questions. I want you, I want us together to wrestle with what seems to be too unbelievable. I want us to wrestle with the, the tensions and the dissonance. Sometimes, right? Um, we make Jonah into this little kid story. Right? And we make it palatable. But it's not palatable. Half the time when we read Jonah, like most of the children's books that I know, leave out the ending of Jonah. We read Jonah as if it's Jonah's the hero and it ends at chapter 3. But it doesn't end at chapter 3. And so what we want to be able to do is dive in and wrestle. So we will do chapter 1 tomorrow. We'll wrestle with chapters 2 and 3. On Wednesday, we'll do chapter four on Thursday, and then I will we'll kind of do a wrap-up session and we'll just chat and talk through kind of what does this mean and what does this mean? how does this how do we walk into the story? Like what is it that we need to do? And then how do we help people who are struggling, who are wrestling with doubt, who are wrestling with some deconstruction, who are kind of walking through? How do we help invite them into? the love and the holiness that God offers because that is where we will find our wholeness. Holiness in many ways is just how God wants to make us whole. And so that's that's the plan. So if you guys would, the other thing is what I did was um, you guys have a resource list So um, I gave you some resources that just might help. Um, You'll notice that I didn't. There's a lot of stuff on spiritual formation there. Okay. Walking through us as followers of Jesus. Part of the reason I did that on purpose, because part of what I want us to be able to do is when people have doubts, when they're struggling, just for us to be able to be secure enough in ourselves and to be patient enough with people that we're not reactively jumping in and trying to fix. Or we're not painting a slippery slope argument for them. You know, oh, you've got this fault. That means that you're going to be here. And if you don't fix this now, then, okay, we, we want to be the people that walk with them. And so that means we've got to kind of, in Jonah, right? I mean, that's what we see in Jonah. God is going to deal with Jonah so that he is the one that is becoming a living example of the heart of God. So, yeah. Can I submit the you keep saying we? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it just going over our head and we think that I or is we the body of Christ? Or, you know, 
I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I use we because I spent over a decade in China and you just don't use a lot of eyes. It really is a lot of we's. So I'm still transitioning okay. in some ways to be back in the States. Yeah. In American culture, we think about I when really the community of the body of Christ is about we and surrounding people. And mm-hmm. it's not just one person that influences somebody. It's all of us right. that can have an impact. We had come to church at a men's conference a few years ago. We had a um, Dr. Monroe. He was from the Bahamas. And he gave an example. He's like, America has a problem in that we're individualistic, the I part. He said from Bahamas, they're used to worshiping a king. And so he was saying that's why probably the Bahamians see it a little bit better because it's not so individualistic. It's about we. And so that's where the we comes from. And in America, we're so I, 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 I individualistic. That's why when he goes and teaches in those countries that have kings, that it's more of an understanding of what the Bible is than than Americans do, because we're so (laughs) much with it. I just want to put that out there. Well, thank you all. Um, I think it'll be a really fun really fun week together. So, let's, let's pray. God, the story that you remind us into and that you want to remind us of is bigger. And the reality is we exchange it for lesser stories. We exchange it for stories of power. We exchange it for stories of influence. We exchange what you've done and what you've called us to for something that is less than. And so, God, we pray that you would meet us. We pray, Jesus, that you would walk with us. We pray that you would help us as we lean into Jonah. God, we pray that in some ways Jonah will be a living example for us and it'll be a mirror that you will use the book of Jonah to hold a mirror up to our own hearts. And may we see you. Father, may we see your heart beating throughout this book. The links that you go to, the way that you want to shape the things that you bring into Jonah's life. God, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us as we wrestle with Jonah together. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Is there anyone who came in and we're missing copies? I've got more copies so you can grab those out of the way. Thanks for coming. We've got 20 minutes till lunch and then the afternoon activity starts. That's why we're going to be with us.